Welcome to another episode of the Building Local Power podcast from the Institute for Local Self-Reliance. I'm Chris Mitchell from the Minneapolis office, and today I'm talking with Billy Ray, superintendent of the Glasgow Plant Board. Welcome to the show, Billy. Thank you, Chris. I'm glad to be here. Uh, Billy, you're an old-time friend of the Institute for Local Self-Reliance. Uh, I think you've been involved with my colleague Stacy's work with Bally over the years. And, and I think of you as being a, a major thinker about local economies and smart investments for the long haul and things like that. But, you know, I'm curious, if someone asked you to give your biography in a minute, how would you give it? <laughs> well, uh, you know, I'm, I'm trained as a civil engineer, but I've spent my whole career in public power. And public power uh, was pretty much invented by FDR and his gang of New Dealers. And so there's always been a very uh, direct relationship between public power systems or publicly owned electric utilities and local economies. I mean, they were to a large part. I mean, they were invented for two reasons. Number one, because rural areas wanted electric power. And number two, uh, the ones that had it were generally paying way too much for it. And every bit of their their local treasure that was spent for electricity was going to some distant board that uh, took that treasure away from ever benefiting the local economy. So I've, I have been interested in all elements of local economies and local control and trying to implement pretty much the electric power microgrid concept with respect to all aspects of a local economy is that there's got to be a way to make it work by eating your own dog food as i like to say uh and and uh concentrating on things that people are going to buy that can be provided locally. I feel like you've lived the same story twice, and, and we're going to get to this in a little bit with community broadband, uh, which you more or less created um, in terms of uh, community broadband internet systems. But what you just described about electricity and, and the, the, the dynamic of many people not having it and those who do have it often unsatisfied with the rates or the quality – that's exactly where we've been with internet for the past 30 years as well. Exactly. There's nothing new under the sun, is there? When I interviewed you to talk about the the birth of community broadband, as I think of it, um, you I just I told you this to prepare a little bit for it, but you talked about thinking about things and as a whole system and and not you know breaking it down too much. I think, and the part that I really remember is this idea of like if you're running a shopping mall and and you see that the parking lot is losing money, you know nobody comes there and pays you to be in the parking lot. And so a consultant comes along and tells you, you know what, you should just get rid of that parking lot. Um, it's a sign of not understanding how the whole system works together. And so I'm curious, you know, you're there in Glasgow, Kentucky, um, a place that many listeners may not even be familiar with. Um, I think, but you've been thinking about small towns for what I can gather is your whole life. So, so what are people missing today when you're hearing news analyses on the TV and things like that about the way small towns should be thinking about their local economies? Well, Chris, I mean, so often what you hear is generated by those who have a uh, an interest in maintaining the status quo. I mean, you know, if you're AET&T, uh, you uh, have an interest in, in focusing the discussion on whether a community should build its own broadband network, for example, on 
the the microscopic or the microeconomics of well, you know, there's been several of these that uh, have failed financially, and we operate a public power system and a public broadband network in this small community of 15,000 people, and it's probably a rare board meeting that I'm involved in where if somebody wants to get way down in the weeds of the individual services that we provide and just look at the uh, the profit and loss uh, characteristics of an individual piece of the puzzle without thinking about the whole puzzle. And, and really, for a public power system, the, the whole puzzle should mainly be focused on how can we make people's lives better in this community? Uh, and how can we keep this community from being used by some distant corporate board to feather their nest at the expense of our local nest. So, yeah, I think that's kind of an epidemic of people that are don't take the time to become fully involved or fully informed, or even worse, they allow themselves to be uh, pseudo-informed by social networks or what have you, and somebody quoting some kind of... Uh, indirect reference or or just blatantly false reference to the success or failure of one of these networks uh, is the real problem as communities try to figure out how to make themselves stand on their own two feet. It's not normally, you know, a a five-minute conversation to really consider all aspects of these things. They're not simple, and people really love simple these days. Uh, They like to make decisions based on a a 40-column-inch Facebook post, and and a lot of these things are just more complicated than that. Well, and it's interesting because one of the things that that we can talk about shortly regarding uh, electricity and the way you think about it, you know, you are an advocate for people paying their their fair share. You know, you're not making excuses for, for a part of the network not being able to generate revenue that is needed or, or that sort of a thing. Uh, and, and so I, I'm curious, you know, how you, how you react to that. Like, the network should be paying for itself, right? Yeah, it should. Uh, but there's a vast difference in today's economy between, for example, a publicly owned broadband network just paying for itself versus the rates that are often charged by the classic operators of these networks, which, uh, you know, produce pretty sizable profits for a lot of stockholders. Uh, There's nothing wrong with it paying for itself. In fact, I'm a big proponent and and have gone to a lot of trouble with respect to electric power to try to re-examine the rates that are classically charged for electric power throughout our country and try to interrupt the status quo there. And the status quo with respect to electric rates is that they are they are just uh, classically socialized, and it's not that the people that are uh, designing electric rate structures are socialists. It's that they, uh, we have for a hundred years used technology to measure electric power that provided not anything like enough information. Uh, for example, you know, if everybody gets an electric bill, and it usually just is based on kilowatt hours or some unit of energy uh, that is not differentiated according to time. And so it's just a monthly charge 
but the utility that's selling, sending you that bill when they either make the energy or buy it from someone else, they're not buying it simple uh, wholesale rate environment like that. They're they're paying different during every hour of the day depending on the mix of generation they're having to run to provide that energy. I think a good explainer of this is actually down in, in Texas where they have so much wind energy at night that I think it's basically free to use electricity at night. Um, and during the day, particularly in the summer days, it's, it's, it's remarkably expensive to use electricity. And that's because when you're using electricity at night, it costs practically nothing to the utility. But if you use it during the day, um, you know, it costs quite a bit because of the, uh, the amount of demand. And so, you know, if you're getting a bill that just tells you you use this many hours, well, you know, depending on how you structured that, you may be overpaying or underpaying relative to what you really owe the utility. Exactly, exactly. That's why I said it's a, it's a very definition of a socialized system. Uh, and again, that was accidental because the technology lagged uh, to provide the kind to meter what people were using and get a good picture of when they were using it compared to the price of producing it. If people, if we had enough, oddly enough, a real component of allowing that metering to flourish and which would then give birth to more efficient electric systems is a robust broadband network. There's a lot of information to be sent back and forth, information that is dramatically more important than uh, having a better Netflix Netflix experience uh, by virtue of having a faster broadband network. I mean, that stuff is okay, but the center of the universe really is in enhancing the most complicated machine that man has yet constructed on this planet, and that is the electric power grid. Uh, so using broadband to make that grid work better and make it more capable of exploiting uh, this practically free wind energy by, by helping people employ appliances and what have you that recognize energy at night is free. Let's figure out a way to heat and cool the house mainly at night and, and to uh, – uh, restructure the way people use energy and uh, with the attempt of trying to make sure that we don't ever have to build any new uh, fossil fuel generation. Now, you saw all this coming in the 80s. And, and I think I'm actually, I'm actually curious if, you know, sitting here in 2019, you're still ahead of the curve. Um, you know, you're, you're still doing things that a lot of the country may not be dealing with for another five or 10 years in terms of how to deal with this world of electricity with broadband available everywhere. But I'm, I'm curious, when you were thinking back in the 80s and, and even early 90s, you know, did you think in 30 years that we would be where we are or we'd be further along? What did you think? No, Chris, really, I thought this all would play out in five years. In 1988, <laughs> I thought this deal would all play out in five years. So uh, I was couldn't have been more wrong about that, uh, about how long it would take, or wrong about the plotting pace of m the members of my fraternity, the electric utility uh, uh, business. Uh, moves so slowly, and there's some amazing dynamics that I, I've watched across the country as a few utilities <laughs> have attempted, every time it seems that a utility goes to a state public service commission and asks 
to make a move in the direction that I'm talking about by restructuring the price of energy where that it's more a fixed cost and the actual value of the energy going down to mimic the actual cost of producing it, public utility commissions have a knee-jerk reaction. They're against it. They, They want to maintain the status quo. Every customer or consumer advocate group known to man automatically against it. It's this struggle to help people who seemingly don't want to be helped. Uh, You know, if you you restructure the energy industry and price it appropriately so that people begin to demand less capital investment for serving loads that vary wildly and unfortunately use most of their energy during three hours of the day, there's no better way to help consumers than preventing those additional capital outlays. But we're struggling to get to that point because consumers apparently prefer the status quo, even though the status quo is screwing them. So let's talk about that for a second, because we've mostly focused on money. And and I actually think particularly listeners to this show may think, well, that's interesting, but I'm more interested in the climate impact or, or other as- aspects of equity. Um, how does this impact things like the climate or equity in the community? Fossil fuel central station power is a uh, a 1920s concept uh, that we all through the 20th century uh, continued to believe in, and we built larger and larger central station units that burned more and more of different, you know, sorts of fossil fuels. And what we're real, what we're seeing now, is that number one. I think we have to start with the foundation that there is climate change. There are plenty of people that want to argue about what caused it, but in the electric utility industry, we're able to at least say, look, there is climate change. Weather is becoming more and more violent. It's more and more difficult to keep uh, communities with the reliable electric power that they require for anything to function, uh, their economy and, and just life in general. So we really need to get the generation closer and closer to the consumption points and kind of give up on this idea of being served by remote giant uh, power production facilities that may be three or 400 miles away uh, and, and reorganize ourselves into a system that's loosely called microgrids where that you can break this complicated grid down into components that each where each component has some generation resources in it. And if you can also have a, a robust broadband network and the appliances to be connected to that broadband network where that a system operator or a microgrid operator can say, look, we've become disconnected from the main world here. We've got five megawatts that we can play with. So all of you guys, we're going to organize you to uh, make sure that no more than five megawatts is used as long as that's what our generation capacity is. It's not unlike what mammals have spent three billion years developing through evolution. Is I'll give you a cycling analogy. Uh, oh, I love cycling analogies. <laughs> I like to ride my bicycle, and I may approach a hill that I would like to go up at 20 miles an hour. Uh, now, my brain calculates that, and it knows what all the resources that I have, what kind of backup 
uh, fat I have stored and gl- glucose and what have you, and it comes back and says, we don't have that. Uh, uh, we can get up that hill at maybe nine miles an hour, and uh, <laughs> we'll organize the muscles and your cells and your energy resources to do that. And it's a lot better than just sitting at the bottom of the hill and saying, no, if I can't go up at 20, I'm not doing it at all. That's the lesson from biology that we have to learn how to accept in the electric power industry. Remember, electric power industry is only 100 years old. Uh, it, it it follows that we haven't figured everything out, uh, and, and we need to be open to learning from nature about how they have learned to manage energy in what is, in effect, a microgrid. Uh, an individual human body is a microgrid. Well, let's let's press into that for a second. So. If you had almost the exact amount of electricity you might need from local solar power created in town, would it matter then that you were still doing a time of use pricing more or less? Why, why would oh. it matter in that event? Well, because it's hard to imagine a resource. You didn't stipulate what kind of resource I had that was equal, but, you know, in 2019, uh, the most likely resource that I might have for my little microgrid would be a combination of wind and solar. And so it still does not negate the, the fact that price needs to fluctuate to help shape demand. If you were had a complete authoritarian system, you could just operate these appliances from central control, you know, and say, look, we've only got five megawatts. Uh, nobody, we can't total any more than that. But I call my utility and ask for permission to use my blender at three o'clock. Yeah, well, you know, I, I do think that we will see the day, and this is kind of getting to my lunatic fringe uh, part. But you know, it may be that the the light switch on the wall that is a simple uh, opening of a circuit. Uh, will someday become more like a web browser where, you know, when you turn it on, you're making a request. Uh, and if that requ- if we have the resources to satisfy that request, we'll, we'll do so. And, you know, you'll be billed for the precise usage that you, that you took from the available resources. And your position is I should not be scared <laughs> about that. No, I, because uh, what you get in return for this, change from the status quo is so little of your treasure in the future having to go toward a 50-year generation asset that, you know, has to be paid for whether you're using the energy or not. So, you know, we're going to learn how this infiltricity concept is is a way to skinny down the grid, uh, make it more durable, and less expensive because it's closer to home and local people can make more decisions about how they want to to invest their money for their energy use. Now, is this something, as you've been implementing Infotricity with the, uh, you built the community television system that became the first community broadband system, um, you know, I'm curious if, this is something that I think clearly works if you had the entire state of Kentucky working together on it. You have enough demand and perhaps control over those big generation facilities. Um, I'm curious if your your scale has limited your ability to implement it or move forward with it in the, the best way you'd like to. Yes, it has, Chris. Um, you know, it's a fairly a fairly common occurrence when we're, for example, negotiating with a software vendor that we need to 
help us control uh, load shape and ma- manipulate appliance usage and thermostats and what have you is that they will uh, often ask way too much money for for the rights to use that software and will say look you're just you're out of you're out of your league you don't understand the the value of this is not ten dollars per customer per month it's more like 89 cents and they'll say well fine you know if you were you name it, PG&E or Commonwealth Edison, uh, and you were going to do 5 million homes, we could do it for 89 cents. But in Glasgow, you're doing 15,000. Uh, and it's not big enough, and, and they will often be in cooperative uh, for pricing these products the way that they need to be priced, and they're shooting themselves in the foot because if we can't show how this works in a small laboratory environment, it's never going to get to a big rollout. Hey, thanks for listening to our conversation today on Building Local Power from the Institute for Local Self-Reliance. As usual, we don't have an ad, but I wanted to ask your support for our work. Reporting on these great local initiatives that takes a lot of time and energy. Your donations keeps us working and keeps our spirits high please take a minute to go to ilsr.org slash donate. Any amount is welcome, and we do sincerely appreciate it. Now we're going to get back to Billy Ray from Glasgow, Kentucky. So let's switch over to um, community broadband a little bit just because of being conscious of time. I <laughs> There's so much more to discuss yeah. there. Um, yeah, there is. But, but in, in, you more or less launched community broadband, and it wasn't just through the, the Glasgow. It was also a, a certain student of yours, uh, a lawyer that you worked with at the time, Jim Baller, who's gone on to be incredibly influential nationally, helping other cities build networks. Um, what over the past, I'm, I'm guessing it actually is almost 30 years now of you having done this, you know, what is different in community broadband that you might not have expected? I really think that it's uh, sort of the same electric utility stuff that I've been talking about. I mean, <laughs> Just repeat ourselves. Yeah, into the, you know, the, the cable TV part uh, and then later on the Internet part were just means to an end. We needed a... a robust broadband network to touch every home and business so that we could do the really big thing, which is learn how to uh, reshape electrical demand. Uh, and I'm, I've been surprised on several, uh, in several fronts. I'm still, I'm surprised that 30 years later, uh, you and I both read daily. And in fact, Jim Baller is one of the ones that often, he does a really great list, uh, email list to try to, gather up headlines about communities that are still 30 years later they're doing studies on whether municipal broadband would work and it <laughs> it just makes me you know jump up and down and say yes that question has been answered can we skip on down uh and you know i've, I've just noticed that tva i mean we buy our power from tva and they uh, they only last year decided that it might make sense. They serve seven states or portions of seven states, and they're trying to decide, or, or they recently decided that it might make sense to run fiber to connect all the different utilities that they serve, so that we could have better access to, and we could have better access to broadband uh, because a lot of those areas of those seven states are still very rural. 
and TVA could in turn get better access to consumption information so they could operate their system better. And it's taken 30 years to get to that, and it's still kind of a nebulous concept. Uh, just notice they're about to uh, do a one or two day seminar called Fiber University to talk to. These are the same people that are operating the most complicated system on Earth, the electric grid. Uh, but in 2019, we still need to have kind of an elementary uh, explanation of what broadband is good for and why you might want to do it. That surprises me. <laughs> that you know, I know that there's 10,000 cities across the United States, and everybody can't do it all at the same time. But in 30 years, I would think that everybody could have done it by now. Well, I am struck when I look at uh, places like Lafayette, Louisiana, where um, they decided to municipalize in 1898 uh, both water and power, and it took. 10 years or so, maybe, I think it, there was an effort almost immediately, but every 10 years they have an effort to try to uh, privatize that utility. It seems like that's never going to go away. So right. uh, on a number of these issues, people just, um, you know, I think it's it's an issue that's it's kind of boring, right? People don't want to think about electricity. They just want it to work. Uh, they don't want to think about the internet. They just they just want it to work. And, um, and so that gives an opportunity for those who want to extract wealth from the communities to try to take it over, it seems like. Yeah, it really does seem to be a fertile field for people that can talk the talk of this extremely complicated machine called the electric grid to kind of pull the wool over people's eyes. And and uh, to a large extent, you know, that's been tried. That that happened with the robber barons, you know, and, and the reason that uh, the New Deal and the Great Depression were uh, were necessary. Uh, I don't want to say that the Great Depression was necessary, but to a large extent, the reason it happened was the exploitation of the electric power grid. Uh, and in the early days, people were being charged prices that were in no way related to the cost of, of delivering that energy. Uh, and the whole concept of uh, natural monopolies and being regulated by state public service commissions was invented to try to protect people but by 2019, long before 2019, but that happens to be when we're talking, to a large extent, the state public service commissions have succumbed to the siren song of the electric utilities, and often they are kind of the handmaiden of the electric utilities instead of the protector of the consumers because they, too, find it really attractive to stick with the status quo, you know, whatever we've been doing probably is good and we ought to just keep on doing that. But if you really dig into the electric utility industry, and there's a great book that I would highly recommend for any of you listeners that are turned on by any of this and want to learn more about it, the, the title of it is just The Grid. I'm flat, caught flat-footed here. I can't remember who the author is, but it's a really great book that explains all of this. I mean, I bought 50 copies to get all of my team to read it, and every time I get a new board member, uh, the first requirement is they've got to read this book. It looks like there's one with the author Gretchen Bakke. That's it. Bakke is a common name on electricity. It seems to pop up a lot of places. <laughs> well, uh, she is a, it seems like she's not an engineer, or she's like a, is it an anthropologist or something like that? Oh. Uh, she comes from a strange direction, but she did a lot of really good research on how we got in the shape that we're in and and where we're going to have to go to come out of this. 
I'm curious if you're familiar with my favorite book that I've read so far on it, and that's Electricity for Rural America, The Fight for the REA by, by D. Clayton Brown. I haven't read that one. Oh, okay. It sounds like something I should read. It's, uh, it's as old as I am. It's a 40-year-old book, and um, boy, it, it actually tells the story of the fight for um, creating the uh, the co-ops. And I was reading it the same time I was reading a thriller, and I couldn't figure out which one I wanted to read because they were both so exciting. <laughs> well, you know, uh, there's a guy that I met back in the 80s because it was really weird. I remember the first time he called me, and I had read his book. Uh, his name's Scott Ridley. And he wrote a book oh, uh, yes. called Power Struggle. That's an incredible uh, book. Know, oh, it's fantastic. And then we became friends. I went up to New England several times to make talks for him with different community groups and what have you. And uh, so even though The Grid is actually a new book, but you're right. A lot of these ones that were written back uh, 40s, 50s, and 60s are the really good books on the electric power industry. Because not that much has changed because it moves in such a plodding fashion. Well, I want to get back to the in the in the broadband and and ask you again where, what difference it makes. So, um, you know, if you compare your, the service you offer in Glasgow against mine, I'm a I'm a Comcast monopoly. Um, you know, um, stuck with them. Um, I pay a lot more, um, although I have faster service than than I think um, is commonly available. Um, what is the difference between um, what you're doing there? Like, wh- what would change if Comcast just took you over? I'll tell you what would change, Chris. I mean, and, and you already said this earlier in some of your comments, is that people don't want to understand this stuff. They just want it to work. I have a really good prediction about what life with Comcast is like in your in your city, and that is that you're pretty much on your own. If you have some strange issue with your service that you can't figure out, your download speed is not what it should be, you just are confused that you've got a new laptop and you don't know how to get it set up on the system, uh, my perception is that you might spend weeks trying to get uh, get your problem solved and you may it may take days out of your otherwise productive life uh, if, if they need to make a site visit and, and, and uh, you know, just a classic monopoly service, big company, little customer. Yeah, I mean, I would actually just go one further and say that in reality, I have had some of these issues, and I just learned to deal with it because I don't, I don't even give them a – I just give up. There's no reason to even that, think about that's it. That's the deal. Whereas, you know, we're, you know, we're within three and a half, four miles of every one of our customers, and – they come right down here with their laptop and they say, what's wrong with this? What am I doing wrong? Or they come with their new phone and, and you know, they've left the AT&T store where they couldn't get any uh, satisfaction. And they come to us and say, look, I've got my Glasgow EPD email address. I want to get it set up on this. And we have people that sit there with them and do it. And with respect to cable TV, and this is another absolutely economically uh, uh, perverse situation. But, you know, uh, even though all the prognosticators with respect to video entertainment write off cable TV, uh, and I'm probably one of them, it's going to be dead in X number of years. We just can't figure out what X is. Because everybody's <laughs> going to, you know, everybody's going to go to streaming. Well, the thing is, there's a huge number of, percentage-wise, a huge number of customers 
that are never going to go to streaming. They they just they won't even use the program guide, which is available on all the TV products that we sell now. They still change channels by the plus and minus key. Uh, and if somebody sits on that remote and gets it off of the right input where that they can't get that, they often are, you know, that's the only entertainment option that they have, and they expect us to send a truck over there with somebody that will walk in the house and get their TV back on the right input, and that's a service we provide. So, you know, it's economically insane, but it makes happy customers. You know, that's that's we understand that that's the basis for our existence is because we live in a rural area, People are not going to get this stuff made easy for them. They didn't get it in 1910 with electricity, so the public power concept came along where people would teach them how to use their washing machine, and it's just being repeated again in 2019, or in our case, since 1988 when we started building this network. Uh, we recognize that it's fairly easy to get a flow of electrons or a flow of bits to go through conductors and arrive at your home, it's much more difficult to democratize the technology, which is constantly evolving. But that's the difference. You ask what the difference is, that's the difference. Yeah, and I, I think it's scary out there. I mean, I am a deeply technical person, <laughs> and, and some of these things just drive me nuts. I get, you know, I have a, I have a three-year-old son, and I have never gotten as mad at him as I do at my computer on a regular basis. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. It's scary. I, it's, I have my, even my garage doors are controlled by an app, and just two nights ago, my wife had somehow gotten into my uh, account with the garage door company and changed and uh, tried to change the password and, and, you know, did the deal where she tried to get to open the garage door so many times that it, it locked me out and then came to me and said, something's wrong. I can't, you know, the garage door thing won't work anymore. I said, well, I can't fix it now because I'm locked out. <laughs> so, you know, it is, it's a, and it's, I understand where our customers are. It's more than an inconvenience. It can border on fear, you know, that that I'm I'm not going to be able to live my life here because this this system, this technology is broken down. And, um, you know, we understand that the basis for the electric power utilities were, at least the public ones, were born of that same fear. Well, let's let's wrap up with a with a fun story. And uh, there's there's you tell a lot of really good stories. We told one of them in the uh, video we did with you the the birth of community broadband, where we talk about how Vint Cerf, uh, one of the 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 most credited with creating the internet people um, on the planet, um, got in touch with you back in the day. When people want to see that story, they can they can watch the video that we have linked in the in the show notes. Um, but I want you to tell me about um, you going to um, be a guest of, uh, of President Clinton's at the time. What was happening around there? <laughs> well, uh, it's his first term, and some of uh, his associates that had been active in getting him elected took a liking to the concept of community broadband. And they uh, were trying to talk me into leaving my post in Glasgow and, and creating uh, 
some kind of, I guess, a sister agency to the American Public Power Association that they wanted to call the, the American Public Info Highway Coalition, as I recall. That's been mm-hmm. a lot of years ago. And uh, <laughs> once when I was, they had a press release to talk about this, and I got to make a talk at the, uh, the, uh, the uh, National Press Club. And uh, that night was the State of the Union address, and they told me to be at a certain bar right there on Capitol Hill uh, at a certain time. And I showed up, and they gave me a ticket to get into the house, which didn't get you into the chamber. Uh, and then somehow uh, before the speech started, they handed me a ticket that was going to let me get on the floor of the house. Uh, and and uh, no more instructions other than that. Well, I, you know, I'm just a, a, an old boy from a, a little town in south, south central Kentucky. And so I went to the doorkeeper person and presented the ticket, and he opened the door and let me in. Of course, there was no place to sit. Uh, every place I tried to sit was taken by somebody important. And I got run out of a couple of seats, and I finally uh, wound up just standing through the whole address, and President Clinton uh, finished. And since I was the only place I could find a stand was right in one of the doors that goes on to the floor of the house. So when it was over and the doors swung open, I was the first one to leave because I was standing in the door. And uh, the only place I knew to go was the last place I had seen my host, uh, which was the office of the the guy that introduces the president at the State of the Union addresses. I can't I can't remember if it's if it's the sergeant at arms or what sure, the right yeah. term is. But anyway, I went to the office that, that office and was standing around waiting for somebody to show up and tell me what I'm supposed to do now. And uh, there was you know refreshments there and uh, a beer, and so I just. Uh, uh, took advantage of that. I was hungry and thirsty and, and was staying around and I turned back around uh, from opening a beer and I was looking right in the face of a Secret Service guy and right behind him was the president. <laughs> and so I didn't know what I was supposed to do next and, and so I just said, Mr. President, that was a great speech. Would you like a beer? <laughs> and uh, he said, I'd really like that, but I'd better not. Of course, he was hoarse. It sounded like he really needed one. Uh, and he asked me who I was, and I told him, and I'm going to tell you, he said, oh, Glasgow, that's the place where y'all built the community broadband network. I said, yeah, that's right. (laughs) So somebody, he either was just a voracious consumer of information, Mm -hmm. or these guys told him I was going to be there, but uh, I I left there impressed. I have no proof of that because there were no pictures made. So (laughs) when I tell the story, I just have to get people to believe me. (laughs) No, it sounds exactly right. And and that's one (laughs) one of the things that that President Clinton was certainly good at was reading. I mean, the stories about about his habits were, were remarkable. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah. No. Yeah. It's you know it, it is amazing to think of of how little has changed. I, I mean, just um, looking at this and in, in the same sort of discussions. Um, but um, I, I do think we're at the precipice, and I'll say that in, in five years, I think things are going to look different. Finally. Um, I hope so, you're right. Yeah, we'll stick with that number. <laughs> <laughs> Well, thank you so much for coming on. It's it's always a pleasure to hear from you. And, and, you know, I'm really glad to know that you stuck around in Glasgow because I think it's easy for people to hop from job to job to job, and it's hard to see something through. And I'm glad that you saw it through and have continued to inspire people. 
I appreciate that, and I've often you know had opportunities to jump and didn't because the people here never really gave me a reason to do that. So, so uh, I stuck, and uh, you know I'm really toward the end of my career now, and I'm I'm satisfied that. I never had to really get associated with a lot of moving van companies. <laughs> That's great. Thank you all for tuning in to this episode of the Building Local Power podcast from the Institute for Local Self-Reliance. You can find the links we discussed today at ILSR.org, clicking on the show page for this episode. That's ILSR.org. While you're there, you can sign up for one of our many newsletters and connect with us on the internet socials. Take a second to rate us, or even shout the name of this show out a window. I'm pretty sure that's how word of mouth works. This show is produced by Lisa Gonzalez and Hibba Murray. Our theme music is Funk Interlude by Dysfunction Al. For the Institute for Local Self-Reliance, I'm Chris Mitchell. We'll be back in two weeks. Let's build local power. <laughs>